Content note. This episode contains discussion of white supremacy. Hi, I'm Elena. And I'm Sophia. And you're listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoiler-full podcast where two scholars read pop fiction by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. Today we're starting a little differently. Since I'm recording on Muncie Lenape land here in Manhattan, we'll be leaving a link in the show notes to the Lenape Center, which is an organization trying to establish a formal Lenape presence in New York. While there are five sovereign Lenape nations in the U.S. and Canada, the Lenape have not been offered an opportunity to have any kind of formal presence in New York, for example, an embassy, in spite of the fact that this land is their stolen land. Given New York's much lauded diversity and internationalism, the failure to acknowledge the Lenape or properly consult the Lenape people when writing the history of the Lenape, say in museums, emblematizes both the effectiveness of U.S. state propaganda against the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island as well as New York's own complicity in maintaining settler colonialism. Anyway, I hope you'll take the time to read a bit about the Lenape Center and their journey to reestablish a community in New York on their sacred land and if you have the means to donate to their cause. So today we'll be discussing our first episode on The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. The place is New York City, and it is on the cusp of a transformation. A birth, in fact. The New York of New- The City We Became is contemporary New York in the midst of being born, literally. But there's already a monster lurking, waiting to consume New York before it can come into being. Things go sideways, however, for our would-be protagonist, the avatar of human embodiment of New York City, and for the antagonist, who seemingly fails to destroy the city before birth, but succeeds in infecting it. Now, rather than there being one avatar, the city has five new avatars, five new humans who represent the five boroughs of New York. Manny, Manhattan. Brooklyn, for Brooklyn. Bronca, the Bronx, Aislinn, Staten Island, and Padmini, Queens. Now, these five unlikely heroes must band together under the guidance of Rio de Janeiro, the midwife of this urban birth, in order to protect New York from a transdimensional virus known as the White Lady. And just a side note for anyone who winces every time we say Aislinn instead of Ashlyn, that is intentional. The book has her down as Aislinn uh, for Staten Island, I guess, just to create more of that kind of sound of island. But also, mm-hmm. evidently in the United States, I guess some people pronounce Ashlyn, Aislinn, or Aislinn. It's hard for me to say it, honestly, <laughs> the other way. Like, I want to say Ashlyn. I know. But I, I recognize, I mean, she did say in the book that yeah, specifically. Yeah, it has to be pronounced that way. So for everyone who's wincing along with us, that is intentional. That is an intentional American mispronunciation, and we will observe it. So uh, full disclosure, this book almost broke us. (laughs) (laughs) Because I loved it so much, and Sophia did not like it that much. I thought it was okay. Like, I didn't hate it. This isn't a book that I was like, I will not read the sequel. This is awful. But it was definitely a book where I also just left feeling like, huh, okay. (laughs) I just read that. And I think it's kind of interesting because in I've encountered a few New Yorkers who likewise read the book and just had this kind of uh, reaction to it and every time I try to dig deeper with them and be like 
so what didn't you like? Because I wanted that content for our episode. Everybody's just kind of like, I don't know. I just didn't like it. So I think that's kind of interesting. I did get out of one person that the version of New York that we get in the novel feels a little cursory and like a kind of New York that anyone in the United States could recognize, but not necessarily one that spoke to the like immediate lived experience of being here 100% of the time, which I suppose we are all now intimately acquainted with. (laughs) But I will say reading this book in the wake of the pandemic was also a very interesting and intense experience. And it did feel incredibly timely in that sense, because the antagonist or invader is a virus. (laughs) And I that wasn't like, it's not like she wrote this in the wake of the pandemic. That's sort of an accidental parallel that was very fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's something that would be interesting for us to discuss because obviously I'm not a New Yorker. I've only been there a couple of times. It was always to visit family. So I don't have that same relationship with the city. And on top of that, you're a metropolitanist thing. (laughs) Your whole (laughs) job and career has been looking at the metropole and specifically you focus on New York as one of your three main cities. So you have a whole different approach to that in addition to being a resident New Yorker. So for me, I kind of appreciated that it was the New York that is kind of in the public domain at this point. Like we've Mm -hmm. kind of all claimed New York as just being a pop culture space that exists in our mind. And so in that sense, it didn't bother me. But I understand why it would bother you in that sense. Okay, maybe this will be my attitude to <laughs> throughout these two episodes. But like, to defend Jemison, <laughs> now that she needs me to defend her, I think there is a lot to say about the scope of the book and the understandable limitations that come with that. So even going through it quickly yesterday to find quotes and things, I noticed like they cover a lot of ground. Like even right at the end, like they go to Spanish Harlem. They go when they're being rerouted at the end of their mission. Like they cross so much of Manhattan and obviously, you know, they go through all the boroughs and they even go to Jersey City. So at some point I realized if you're going to do that, it's very different than if you have a book that's set in Hell's Kitchen and you have the neighborhood feel and you have the recognizable places. And it's very different than, yeah, if you spend all your time in Flash Flatbush. Like, it's a different kind of New York story. And I understand how that can be frustrating because obviously it you can only highlight at that point. But for me, I kind of forgave it because the scope was so large and that's I guess that that's something we could discuss do you feel like this was warranted would you have rather she had a more focused approach I think it was really ambitious to tackle as much as she did and I think for me as well reading a I think one of the things formally is just reading a book with so many different characters I don't necessarily mind like I enjoy say war and peace with all of the perspectival shifts but it's definitely challenging when you introduce a lot of characters all at once because you're asking your audience to invest in them and it's a bit like how like with Game of Thrones when they were making that series there were actually YouTube videos you could watch where they would split the narrative so if you didn't really enjoy the show but you had one particular narrative you wanted to follow you could just follow that one character (laughs) 
through and like skip the rest of the show, which is obviously not probably the best way to enjoy anything. It's been made to be an ensemble mm-hmm. production, but sometimes I feel that way with narratives that have a lot of characters as well that you sort of invest in one character more than the others and then it's hard to really want to but I have to say when I was like because one of the things that I wrote down for this discussion was who's your favorite character and I was sitting there going I don't like any of these characters like as a a character to attach to you know I didn't feel like we really got anyone's personality per se besides maybe Bronca is the one that we got the most of. But I think for me as well, when you live in a city, you have this kind of sense of ownership. And I should preface that with, I'm not a New Yorker. I come from Savannah and I've only been in the city for four or five years now, but I have lived in Queens. I've lived in Manhattan. I've lived on Long Island. And I think especially the representation of Queens was a little bit perplexing to me. And I do get the limitations of the book because each character is every borough has a human avatar and so when you get to queens that's difficult and i think we're going to talk about that more in the second episode so i don't want to like dive too deeply into queens but yeah i mean another thing i think is i came into this book expecting it to be sci-fi because that's sort of where jemison has built her reputation and I do think it's moving in the direction of sci-fi. It just wasn't, it was hard to place in the beginning. And that really threw me because, you know, when you come in expecting one thing and then you get something completely different, it's like, what am I, this is not what I sat down to read today. I sat down for a (laughs) sci-fi. It also like really struck me because I had never read any Jameson before. And even on the back cover of the book, all the different blurbs are the most important speculative writer speculative fiction, science fiction and fantasy, science fiction and fantasy, fantastic speculative fiction. So they're like, those admittedly are related genres, but it's, I don't know, for me between fantasy and speculative fiction, there's a difference. And then I was like, this is not science fiction. Yeah, I feel like sci-fi and speculative fiction are part of the same category, but fantasy is yeah, a different and then, category. Like, I had a quibble with calling this science fiction because there is no science. Like, there is no technology that is involved. I feel like the introduction of the multiverse was the moment when I went, future books could start moving more in the direction of yeah. speculative fiction because that is based on like actual physics and theories Mm. that exist about the nature of our universe potentially being a multiverse but that was such a small blip in this book that I think it's a stretch and you have to wait so long to get to the point where you discover that the world that we're seeing is a multiverse that I think it's hard to tell people that what they're in for when they buy this book is science fiction because it really isn't science fiction in any way until you kind of get to that moment several hundred pages into the text really just before it ends. So I feel like maybe in the sequels, the sci-fi aspects of it will be fleshed out, but it's very hard to really categorize this book as sci-fi because it's such a small moment in the text. It was just a moment of like, aha, the sci-fi is finally appearing. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but we're like, I've landed on thinking of it as a mix between magical realism and urban fantasy. 
yeah, it has an urban fantasy mm-hmm. feel. But since I've read this book, I've started Jemison's earlier book, The Fifth Season. And that was really interesting to see the construction of the text and the kind of decisions that she makes that come back in the city we became. And in the fifth season, obviously, it's it's the Broken Earth trilogy. So it's very much grounded in a very similar way. So one of the things I loved about this book is it did feel very sensual or very tactile experience. Like the writing makes it feel very physical in a way I really enjoyed. And for me personally, I'm... (laughs) Okay, this is going to sound weird, but I am very sensitive to vibes in spaces. Like when I come into someone's house... Or when I visit a new city. And so in my own narrative, I often refer to city as people. Just when I try to explain to people why I I love the city or I didn't like one. And I'm just like, sometimes it's not the city's fault. We just don't jive. Like, it, we just have different personalities. We just didn't get on. So when I read that this book was like New York as five six people I was like yes this is exactly my experience of things like when I walk into a neighborhood I feel like I'm meeting a person so I love that aspect I I definitely felt like it was the first book of a series and going back to what you said like Mm -hmm. when I read your your question about what's my who's my favorite character it's like this is kind of hard because they are not developed equally at all so I felt mm-hmm. like I had to choose between Bronca and Aislinn. <laughs> I was like, I'm not picking Aislinn. So. <laughs> um, oh, I don't even remember the name of the one that I picked. I picked oh, Vanessa. Yeah, that was my favorite. I like. She was yeah, really cool. Vanessa. Yeah. I just, yeah, she was like a fun character who isn't super developed either, but I just liked her better than like Manny oh, is. God. I- just an obnoxious bro and there's he's just not designed to be likable brooklyn i feel like i just didn't get to i mean even like later on i have a quote from brooklyn about what the city is and it's funny because she doesn't describe brooklyn she just says brooklyn is brooklyn and i kind of feel like that's why i can't pick that character as my favorite because you just don't get a really deep sense of who she is Mm -hmm. either you get categories for her but not necessarily a a personality or a lot of depth of personality. I like Brooklyn. I don't have a problem with her. I just didn't really feel like I had a lot to grab onto with her. And Padmini, likewise, I feel like she appears and she's always around, but she's not really she's a very presence. timid. I feel like her personality is not brash like Brooklyn or, or Bronx. Like they're very loud, assertive yeah, women. And, I guess Queen- and like Manny is, yeah, as you said, really obnoxious. And so Padmini's kind of in the corner being like, eh. I'll just do my sums. (laughs) Yeah, but we really don't get much about her. And so I I also felt like for that reason, yeah, it was just hard to pick someone because you don't really get anything about them. And maybe what appealed to me about Vanessa is because she isn't immediately identifiable with a place. Before we go into quotes, is there something that you would like to say about what you liked about the book? (laughs) <laughs> yeah no no I'm joking <laughs> that was a joke that was a joke I it was too easy I actually know there are things I enjoyed about the book I'm trying to remember what they are right now because I've just well, spent so much while time while you gather your thoughts um I mentioned a bit about the writing style but the narrative is also very 
interesting in that it has what she calls interruptions in between chapters. So every chapter, more or less, or like an arc of a couple of chapters follows one perspective of one of the main characters. But there are interruptions where it's from the perspective of Rio de Janeiro. So I think that that was interesting. And now that I... I'm reading the fifth season. I see that where there's a character where she uses the second person. So it's like you. And so you are doing this, Mm -hmm. you are doing that. So she inserts the reader as that character. And then the other Mm -hmm. people are in the third person. And then she also has what in the fifth season is called interludes. Where they're like, you might Mm -hmm. have noticed that some things are missing from this narrative. And this is important because and I was like, this is great. <laughs> I was, oh, yeah, so that's now I, I really want to reread The City We Became now that I know that this is kind of Jemison's thing. I think the thing that I did enjoy about the book is almost in some ways the same thing that I didn't enjoy about the book, which is its ambition and trying to cover the entire city. As a thought experiment, it did make me realize that a lot of times when you read New York City novels, what they represent is a very small, really more like a neighborhood of New York and not the city as a whole. So if you look at something like we talked about this with Sex and Vanity, but also in relation to Edith Wharton's New York and uh, the New York of Gossip Girl, especially the older version of Gossip Girl. I don't know about the new adaptation, but that is this rarefied Upper East Side, New York, very white, waspy New York. But that's a very limited understanding of what New York is. And yet it is an, a sort of oversaturated representation of New York that we sort of know just broadly in pop culture. I also think like just the the diversity and perspectives in terms of the books that we read in general on this podcast, it was nice to have another narrative that foreground the experience of people of color as well. So that's something that I enjoyed about the book. And I think it's telling that four out of the five boroughs are people mm-hmm. of color. One of those is indigenous, which I feel I never encounter when I read New York narratives. And Branca does get a good chunk of the book. Yeah. So in that sense, there there is a lot and there's a diversity in ages. You know, Bronca's in her 70s. You have like young people, you have grad students, you have uh, Brooklyn is a mother and she's a politician. I also thought it was interesting that there was no law enforcement as part of the core group. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In a lot of other ensemble casts, whether it's superheroes or just like unlikely avengers of something there is often an enforcer Mm -hmm. whether that's a police officer or the equivalent in a fantasy world and i thought that the absence of that here was also very telling yeah that is really important and i think another thing that that reminds me of is at the opening of the book there's because our first avatar of new york city the overall avatar of the city is a young black man and possibly queer yeah and his his first encounter with the virus is actually he's at the new york public library and he sees a pair of police and at first he's like i can't be you know having a run-in with the police for obvious reasons (laughs) reasons that should be extremely obvious in the wake of george floyd and should have been obvious before that 
But then it turns out actually that the bad feeling he's getting doesn't have to do with them being police. It has to do with the fact that they're this virus and that they are very literally going to obliterate him or try to like destroy him. And so he goes on the run and he has to navigate the city and both get away from them as well as get away from the police at the same time because a young black man on the run is automatically suspicious, even though he's actually trying to get away from danger. So the book is very timely in that sense as well. Yeah, there are these themes that you see in real life that are worked into the science fiction that I think you always expect when you're looking at any genre of fantasy, magical realism, sci-fi, speculative fiction, whatever it is. The better ones are commentary on our world and have Mm -hmm. recognizable parallels with our world and so this book has definitely has that in our second episode when we discuss aislin a bit more we'll see that her relationship to the woman in white is different and markedly different for a number of reasons and i just remember now that there is actually a presence of law enforcement which is aislin's abusive father who's a police officer oh right so that's another way that that comes in but i think Still, law enforcement is not part of the core gang. Mm -hmm. And so we will be back after the short break. Hey, listeners, Elena here. I want to share some exciting news. We now have Kofi membership tiers. Kofi is a donation platform that allows you to support Bookshelf Remix with a small monthly donation. Starting at only $1, you can have access to our secret Discord, ad-free episodes, and bonus episodes on movies, TV shows, and extra books. At the $10 level, you can even redeem a personalized reading list from Sophia and myself. So if you can spare at least $1 a month, head over to ko-fi.com forward slash brpod and join us behind the sacks. That's ko-fi, ko ficom forward slash brpod. Welcome back. To me, the introduction of the multiverse is where this novel begins to turn into sci-fi. It's that kernel of scientific possibility, as we also are already talked about in the previous section. So what we wanted to do now is to just try to get a handle on what this multiverse is. What are the rules of the world that we've entered, especially because the novel begins really much, I guess, like any action narrative often does in the middle of the action. (laughs) And so it's kind of a learn-as-you-go environment in terms of how this universe functions. So we're going to talk a little bit about the multiverse and New York City as an anomaly and what is going on. What is the premise of this book? Yeah, I mean, you brought this up in our discussions that the lore is kind of confusing because we have sao paulo who comes so wait is it not rio is it it's sao paulo sorry did i so we've made mistakes all through (laughs) okay i had a glass of wine before i made this document everyone (laughs) so apologies everyone it's not rio it's sao paulo uh (laughs) right country though at least um but Yeah, so there are two kind of like single city avatars that come through the book. So we have Sao Paulo and we have Hong Kong and they meet 
our characters and they explain, you know, most cities only have one avatar. Only like in recent times, at least the most modern city that had multiple was London. And then they had to be kind of consumed into one. So they assume that this is what's going to happen with New York. And I mean, Sophia, you made this point, and I take it seriously of saying like, okay, isn't it a bit simplistic to say, oh, New York, of all the cities, is the one that has multiple avatars? Like, every city has distinct neighborhoods and different subcultures and things. And Rio de Janeiro actually would have been a great example of that. I'm not as familiar with Sao Paulo, so it's hard to say. Maybe that's why I just transformed him uh, right on into Rio. (laughs) But most cities have this comes from this is where like expert Sophia begins to come out I guess most (laughs) cities are actually what are called agglomerations which means that you have a an original town in the case of New York it would be Manhattan in the case of London it's actually quite interesting because I think it's four different towns that just kind of slowly grew into each other and so Mm. you have these four different distinct places. So London's an interesting choice also to have developed in this particular way. But every large city is like this. I don't think that there is an example of a city, except maybe if you look at, say, something like Athens, where you just have like a a small and kind of singular place. And that would be ancient, Mm -hmm. not not contemporary Athens. (laughs) No. (laughs) But in general, most of what we consider cities today, singular cities are actually what are called agglomerations, which is this process of one particular place growing a little bit more powerful than the surrounding areas. And then slowly, because it needs space to grow into, taking on within its city limits, those areas, until eventually what you get is what is called a metropolitan area which may include suburbs and may even cross state lines. And we'll get that in this narrative as well, the way that New York is actually not confined to New York State. New York City is not confined to New York State. So yeah, one of the things that kind of stood out to me about this narrative, and I think, you know, at first it was a critique, and I think actually through conversation with (laughs) Elena, it may have turned into a very interesting possibility for future books or maybe... Maybe we're on to something in our theories, our theorizing over here about where this series is going, is the question of, well, how can any of these cities be one person or one single place? There are two things. One, I think just for narrative purposes, it was probably easier for Jemison to be like, we have one Sao Paulo and one Hong Kong that come and like talk to you instead of having like 15 people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think... I think there was a choice there. But then we learn very little. We're only there are only hints of like what the rules are. We kind of know there's an old order of cities. So Hong Kong is very ancient and Sao Paulo is is actually the newest city because he was supposed to help birth Bajo Prince in Haiti and and that then when that failed because the book says like a combination of geopolitical things the city could not be born and then it went on to new orleans but then katrina and everything again the city could not be born so there's this idea of of city history if you will but some cities are older than others and then we're told oh you know london and new york are exceptions 
And then New York is even more of an exception because it doesn't swallow up the people at the end. All through the novel, that's like a looming, that's a looming threat yeah. too, that New York, the New York avatar may actually just eat the other avatar. <laughs> so. Yeah. And there's actually going back multiple like just descriptions, like passing descriptions of a city of like as one that gobbles up, that engulfs, that is a imagery of eating and cannibalism, kind of, mm-hmm. or kind of like yeah, you 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 lose your soul to the city, like the city makes you a different person, brings out different things in you, and so. But Sophia, you floated the idea that the exceptionalism of New York could be a lie. Yeah. Yeah. This really interests me, which is we get this character introduced at the end of the book when Sao Paulo is knocked out. (laughs) So the older cities sitting on this council have to send a new midwife to take over. And I guess they decide that they need to send in like an old and experienced city because clearly sending like the latest city was not effective. And maybe they I guess, shouldn't send the second latest city either to clean up the mess. So Hong Kong appears, generally referred to as Hong. And I think once he appears, we begin to get some hints at the longer history of how these cities form overall. But Hong is very stern and sort of rigid and there's something there's something unlikable about him i think immediately when he enters the narrative and I, that is what has kind of led me to think that maybe we're not meant to believe everything that he says or that there may be a lot more messiness and complexity to the universe but for whatever reason this is the way that the sort of council of older cities has decided to represent the transformation process and i'm very interested in that possibility because i think okay the lady in white is an okay antagonist for the first book but i don't think that she's gonna bear up from more than two books as an antagonist like I feel like life is very messy and complicated yeah I I agree I think she's not exactly defeated at the end so she could I could see her it'd be satisfying for me if she like kind of came back in the third book but we had like an interlude Mm -hmm. with something else and I think she should always be there But she's sort of an anomaly, you know? And I feel like Hong and the Council of Older Cities may represent something more structural. Yeah, and I would think it might be interesting if we discovered some kind of city council corruption. Or, for example, if they... Sophia nods vigorously. (laughs) Perpetuates the, the lie that the city must consume... And so they're like, you have this is something that you have to do when maybe that's not the case and more diversity is possible and there are different forms of but it's easier for them to control if you have single avatars. Yeah, and have they all been consuming their other avatars and they're just pretending that London was an anomaly? I don't feel like Sao Paulo is a liar. So I do think he's either singular. He was either a singular avatar or somehow he's been convinced that this is just a simpler 
mm-hmm. narrative to use to explain when birthing another city and maybe he's left his own other avatars back in Sao Paulo because he seems singularly untraumatized by <laughs> consuming them if he has. But then again, you know, that could be a symptom of trauma that you hide the fact that this happened to you at all. And yeah. I'm really excited for the second book. The possi- I, really- I, I feel like the possibilities are endless. And yeah, I mean, like, <sighs> once we sort of stumbled upon this theory of the city council is going to turn out to actually be corrupt and peddling this sort of false narrative, that was when I really started to get excited about this world. So I really hope that that bears out and that it's we're not just in some other universe with our, our theories. I think this segues nicely into discussing the woman in white because she comes in as an alien, basically, mm-hmm. that is as just taking human form, which is a white woman, like a middle-aged white woman. And which actually historically is very appropriate, I guess, because, oh, you know, if you think about the first aliens on U.S. territory, it was European invaders. So. Oh, burn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just saw her as like a perpetual Karen. Mm-hmm. Like she has like strong Karen energy. But she comes to explain that every city birth destroys part of her universe. So this is where the multiverse comes in. And so already throughout the book, of course, we're meant to sympathize and be on the side of the New York avatars. And also because, you know, this is our recognizable world. But she's the antagonist and she's evil. But she's also there to say, like, you know, your existence is hurtful. There is no innocence of technology here. The fact that you are being born has consequences for other worlds. And so I'm just here to fight and to assert my world. And so you could kind of see that if the story had been told from a different perspective, you could have sided with her in the sense of, like, I want to... I think none of the avatars deny that, you know, like towards the end of the novel, there is this acknowledgement that the sort of beauty of this multiverse comes at the sort of cost of what it destroys and it's making. And I think that that's a very grounded kind of Earth-like logic to this larger multiverse, which is that in order for one form to come into being, there is a consumption of other forms or you can't nothing out of or something out of nothing. So I like that that's introduced, that there are stakes to the existence of the multiverse. It's not something that just sort of like cleanly and happily occurs and that is only impeded by the woman in white. But I also think at the same time, she's also being disingenuous because this is how she justifies her conquest of other worlds as well. I found that that was very like similar to a eugenicist argument about environmentalism, like a typical kind of environmentalist, but uh, eugenicist and white supremacist argument, which is that uh, that's existed for hundreds of years, this idea that properly white Europeans limit their population or somehow have this kind of like population control in place and everywhere else is just reproducing uncontrollably and is using up all of the resources and that as actually she describes it, you know, these cities are a virus that's taking over. And that's a very common metaphor for things like immigration 
mm-hmm. certain populations reproducing, but not others. Yeah, so I thought that that was that was an interesting and definitely I think intentional parallel that there are sort of yeah. two ways to approach this discourse on how we create a sustainable future, and one of them is distinctly white supremacist, and that's the one that focuses on population control. Yeah, and it even comes through in you know the the tentacles that are infecting the city that are kind of the woman in white's army, if you will, or an extension of herself or whatever you want. But everything it creates is very orderly and very antiseptic. And I think, again, not to beat it on the head too much, but this is in stark contrast with our mainly BIPOC cast. Yeah. Who are there and they're kind of like, I understand that our hands are not clean, but I'm fighting for the city. Like It was very interesting to me that in a genre that often tells the story of the chosen one, the chosen one is presented with the mission, the chosen one refuses the mission, something else happens, the chosen one has to do the mission. And now the city is the chosen one. And so even though it would be too simplistic to say that Manny, Brooklyn, Branca and queens are all like oh yay let's do this like no there are frictions they resisted like they're not happy about being there but at the same time there is this resolve of like what else are we gonna do like this is our city we're being called this is we answer and then compared to aislin the only white woman she's just like no don't want don't want anything to do with this and she's the one that refuses the call, but then the story keeps going without her. Like, they find a solution without her, mm-hmm. which displaces her as what could have been a central character. And what we we see so often in media, we see the main white woman protagonist with her BIPOC friends. Yeah, that's really interesting in terms of tropes. And I also want to emphasize, you know, as far as the woman in white goes, that as much as she sanitizes the world and creates this kind of very stark and neat architecture very like geometric in the descriptions that is a whitewashing of the Mm -hmm. the harm and the damage that she does so it's not that her hands are clean it's that she erases the evidence of the violence that she's done which is i think another big difference between her and our main characters but there's also something interesting going on there with urbanism just more broadly which is that typically the most interesting cities tend to be a bit uncontrolled in the way that they come into being and sort of a mishmash of different things. And I saw the woman in white as sort of your typical administrative city, which is a city mm-hmm. that has been built to be an administrative center. Places that resemble this are places like Washington, D.C. or Albany, New York's state capital. And, it, and basically... Jane Jacobs has an interesting theory, one of the most famous urbanists, that administrative cities as neatly sort of planned and designed as they are, or perhaps precisely because they're planned and designed for a single use, can never really evolve into real cities. They will always be kind of empty and failures because they are single use and they're over-designed. And the woman in white's kind of architecture that she imposes particularly in Staten Island when Aislinn submits to her is very much this model of sort of gridded streets everything is in its place and there's sort of no life Mm -hmm. there so I thought that was kind of an interesting just little um easter egg for (laughs) 
people who know about urbanism as well. And it, it's interesting that you describe it that way because it goes back to the virus metaphor of, you know, a virus is neither dead nor alive. Mm-hmm. And what the woman in white is trying to instore is something that, as you say, like can never be a real city in, in our terms because it lacks the organic aspect, which involves some spontaneity and some dirtiness. And so like, it's like plants come with soil and mud, like yeah. it, it, it needs that. And she's really trying to impose, as you say, like an over-designed. Well, actually kind of fascinatingly what this conversation is also bringing to mind is that the earliest examples of the implementation of planned cities were actually colonial cities in Latin America. So the designs were created in Europe, right? But they already had their sort of messy confusing completely illogical cities in place and if you ever want to see an example of that just go to Siena Uh, that's sort of a well-preserved medieval city that you will get definitely get lost in because it's very confusing but this idea of like a strict geometrical design for a city is first implemented in the colonies because there's this sort of idea of like, oh, this is empty and available land. Wasn't empty, by the way, <laughs> going back to our land acknowledgement at the beginning of this episode. But in the mind of the colonizers, it was empty and available. And so they showed up and I guess the metropole decided we're going to lay things out in this gridded way and obviously like latin american cities and colonial cities overall have become a lot more complicated since that time but i think it's really interesting to think about also how that kind of model is born out of colonialism and is this also like a reference to that because the woman in white is very clearly a virus from another dimension trying to colonize (laughs) our planet (laughs) yeah and the metaphor for colonialism is again there yeah. It keeps following us of like, yeah, they're they're literally trying to defend their home, their land, their self, their identity. Walter and... Manola would tell us, of course, because everything starts with colonialism in the modern era. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean I give I give big props to NK Jemison because, you know, even though we had different personal experiences with the book and different opinions on the book, there's definitely lots to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, I plan to read the sequels. So this wasn't, there are certain books that literally I will not make it past the first few pages. I get so annoyed. And this was not one of those books. I was definitely able to read it. I just, I didn't necessarily see why it had to be set in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and something that annoyed me throughout was just the feeling of I don't necessarily feel mm-hmm. like space in this novel is as central as maybe the the title and the premise would suggest but that being said you know sometimes also I think disliking a book or not absolutely loving a book is actually a really productive like place for discussion because you end up having a more articulate reason for like I don't know just I for me anyway I find I tend to be more articulate about what I don't like about books than what I do (laughs) maybe because I end up feeling like I have to justify it more. So it's not necessarily a bad thing when I'm skeptical because this is a book meant to be legible to people who don't live here. Mm -hmm. It has to be a New York that looks at things that are recognizable, but maybe don't get the entire picture. And that's definitely something that we're going to talk about. I'll get into in particular, like when it comes to the representation of Queens, I felt extremely frustrated. (laughs) That's fair. 
And, you know, we've said we don't spend that much time either in Queens or with Queens Padmini. Mm -hmm. So there is part of that problem. Um, Which, by the way, but... is like the most diverse area of New York City. So <laughs> there are lies. Yeah, but spoiler she, alert she... for next episode. That's my frustration. <laughs> but she had to pick one person. So, but did she? Whoever did person she have she to pick to the person she picked would have frustrated you because no one person can be every ethnicity and culture. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I almost feel like in that sense it would have been better if she had picked if maybe she had made the person multi ethnic. Yeah. Well, even if, even multi-ethnic, I don't know. I would have preferred multi-ethnic for Queens too. I don't know. I just think okay. or maybe maybe give Queens multiple avatars. I mean, why are there rules, frankly? It doesn't really seem like the rules are working oh, anyway. So maybe well, maybe I'm, that's I'm the gonna future. say it's a narrative choice. Like you can't have multiple avatar for Queens and not multiple for the Bronx. Like where is the Cuban representation? Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, um, as as a person who lived in Queens, I would just like to say that, like, not you can't even pick a neighborhood where there's one particular, like, ethnicity. It's incredibly diverse. And that, you know, I was curious to see how she would represent that and the fact that she picked one international identity to represent it was... Well, for me, it was the immigrant perspective, like because you had Brooklyn born and bred. You had Manny fresh off the train, reinventing himself. You had Bronca, who's like representation of urban indigeneity. And in the sense of like, in her case, it wasn't a result of the Relocation Act. Like this is her tribe's land. Mm -hmm. And then the city is built on it. And then you had Padmini, who is the immigrant. So I, for me, I it didn't frustrate me in that sense because I felt like, yeah, so she represented this kind of like the immigrant who comes and, you know, is sending money back to her family and has this kind of experience of like studying something that she really loves, but having to find a lucrative job that she hates so she can support her family back home. I felt like if you had to pick something, I'm not upset that she picked Padmini. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I also found like Pebmini being a math graduate student was also like somewhat irritating and essentializing, even though she is female and not male, which was at least an improvement. But it did feel a little bit like the stereotype of like Asians coming to the United States and just being like very good at technical skills or like technical disciplines like math or physics yeah, but or she's, engineering. She's, she's into higher math, like what her job is finance mm -hmm. and she hates it but i don't know i disagree i think yeah. that yeah anyway um <laughs> yeah maybe maybe we shouldn't keep delving into new york city that we keep like trying to veer off into the next episode subject <laughs> by I the know. way we're having this a... episode is gonna be so frustrating for everyone <laughs> shall we end shall we just end on the quotes and then yeah we'll, sure like, yeah we give a taste of the book so the first quote sophia will read is from the woman in white and then immediately following i will read a perspective of bronca talking to her younger colleague vanessa who turns out to be jersey city at the end of the book the problem is that cities are rapacious there is infinite room in existence for all the universes that spin forth from life even universes as bizarre as this one room for everyone but some life forms cannot be content with just their ecological niche. 
They're born invasive. They punch through. And when they do, they turn 10,000 realities into nothing like that. She snaps her fingers. And they can do much worse if they put their backs into it. Or even if they don't. Actually, that's kind of interesting just because she ends up contradicting herself. At first, she says that there's infinite space. And the, the next yeah. thing, you know, she's like launching into this austerity argument. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't notice that as you were reading it. I was just like, so are you saying some cities like play along and some cities are like inherently essentially like savage? I think she's saying if everybody does it her way, then there's infinite room. Yeah. But yeah. if they don't do it her way, then uh oh, the universe is no longer infinite and it's running out of space. And it's like, I don't think that's how infinity works. Yeah. Okay. Cities traverse the layers. In this world, Bronca points at the skyline that rises above the trees of Bridge Park on their side of the river. People tell stories of how terrible the Bronx is. At the same time, somewhere, some realtor is talking up how amazing it is so that people with money will come and buy up everything. At the same time, there are the folks who live here, for whom it's neither terrible nor amazing. It just is. All of these things are true. And that's just within our own reality. It's not just decisions, is what I'm trying to say. It's every legend of the city, every lie, those become new worlds too. All of them add to the mass that is New York, until finally all of it collapses under its own weight and becomes something new, something alive. All right, so we'll leave this you is on fun. That. I just I wish we had gotten more. I really wish we had gotten more of the sort of theories of the multiverse because that was where I really felt like I was like, yes, give me more. I yeah. want to know the rules of this world. Tell me more about that. I don't, yeah. and maybe that's part of my problem. I was kind of like, I don't really care about getting another version of New York. To be honest, I want, I want the sci-fi. <laughs> give me the sci-fi part. <laughs> And I, I just wanted to add that I wanted to include this quote because it touches on some things that I picked up in the book that make Elena the expert come out. <laughs> and because I, if listeners don't know, I work in philosophy on autonomy and this idea that there are multiple narratives and that the narratives create. And when Branca says it's not just decisions it's not we're not just making active choices like the world that we build is not made only of our conscious active choices it's made of lots of unconscious ones it's made of the stories we choose to tell and retell the stories we choose to suppress and i don't know i i thought that jemison weaves in that theme quite a few times throughout the book and i just really felt seen i was like yes yes jemison yes yeah and i i mean i think that that also like speaks to how my frustration in some ways is a non-frustration or is not necessarily a valid frustration, which is as much as I want this book to do more with more personalities and more cultures. At the same time, one of the things that she does do a really good job of is not essentializing the avatars of each neighborhood that actually, you know, if one of them dies, that's not the end of that mm -hmm. neighborhood. The neighborhood will pick a new or the borough will pick a new avatar to replace the previous one and it may be you know that may lead to completely different results and i think that the the council of cities tries to make sure that you know avatars are not lost in general because it's maybe a little bit more predictable but 
there is this possibility. There's these kind of constantly growing possibilities, and we'll get into that with the introduction of Vanessa and Jersey City as well. So yes, and I have lots of thoughts on that. So we will discuss that. Tune in, in next week. Episode. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks from now. Oh uh, yeah, two weeks from now. So Sophia, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at the Metropolitanist, at Metropolitanist on Twitter, or on my website, MaisonMetropolitanist.com. I post on all things related to my research areas on those platforms. Elena, where can people follow you or find you? People can find and follow me if they want on Twitter at Elena G. Mamrill, on Instagram at Spinoodler, and on my website, ElenaGoatseeMamrill.com. If you want even more of my voice in your ears, you can listen to my other podcast, Philosophy Casting Call. And before we close out, Sophia, can you tell us where people can find more Bookshelf Remix? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bookshelf Remix and rate, review, and follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, or wherever you listen. This helps more people discover the show. You can email us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com. Our transcripts live on ko-fi.com slash brpod for everyone, linked in the description. While you're there, please consider supporting us. We now have a secret Discord for our monthly supporters, and we're working on more bonus content. So text a friend who lives in a city about the podcast. Text a friend who likes reading fantasy about the podcast. And remember to give your bookshelf a good remix.